0: I'm Matt Marcus.
1: And I'm Anna Karalik.
0: This is For All Humankind, a podcast about your place in spaceflight.
1: This week, we're giving you an overview and taking your questions on the landing of the next Mars rover, Perseverance, and its accompanying helicopter, Ingenuity.
0: We'll also be talking to Sabrina Khan, a planetary scientist, about the science side of the Mars 2020 mission. For today's conversation, we'd like to focus on the upcoming landing of the next Mars rover, Perseverance, and its accompanying helicopter, Ingenuity. So to facilitate this, we are going to combine the AMA segment and our discussion today and start by giving you a brief overview of Mars 2020 and the entry, and landing process, and then interspersed with that, take some listener questions. So to start things off, um, Anika, do you want to start us off with an overview of the 2020 mission?
1: Yeah, I'll do my best. Uh, So... The Mars 2020 mission is kind of the total name of the rover, the cruise stage, and, you know, the sky crane and the helicopter that is accompanying it. And I'll break all of those down because that's a lot of different parts. Um, Perseverance is the rover that will be landing on February 18th. Uh, it launched from Earth on, I believe it was July 30th of this past summer, uh, which was very exciting. Um, and obviously it's been cruising on its way to Mars since then. And it is basically the twin rover of Curiosity in many ways. Um, it's very similar in design. Uh, they changed kind of very little of the actual frame of the Rover. They basically just made Curiosity a second time. They improved the wheels because the Curiosity Rover, which landed back in 2012, actually saw a lot of damage to its wheels just from, uh, the Martian rock, which was not expected. So they improved the wheel design on Perseverance and they updated a bunch of the actual scientific instruments. And so it, it's not just kind of a rehashing of Curiosity, it has a different scientific mission. Um, notably, it also has, like you mentioned, Ingenuity, which is the helicopter. Uh, so it'll be the first ever uh, space aircraft, <laughs> it's the first aircraft on a different planet. Um, and Ingenuity is basically a tech demo, which means that it'll be trying to show the viability of flying helicopters on different planets and when i say helicopter i don't mean something like a newscopter i mean something that's more of a quadcopter size um ingenuity is not a quadcopter it has kind of a stacked rotor design um but it's a really unique part of this mission and i'm really excited to see uh what it accomplishes after it is uh doing its first flight which will be i think in Mar- march of this year um so looking forward to that
0: yeah, and just to give uh, an idea of kind of what this looks like, if you've seen the latest Mars rover Curiosity that's on the surface of Mars, like Annika said, uh, externally it looks very much the same. It's sort of, you know, this big white rover with this uh, camera stock sticking up uh, on top of the deck. It has a uh, nuclear radioisotope thermoelectric generator on the back, basically a nuclear battery, um, and... Like I say, from the outside, uh, this new rover, Perseverance, looks a lot like the previous rover Curiosity that landed on Mars. And the landing system, all of the parachutes and uh, the retro rockets that are used to land it on Mars, are all pretty much the exact same concept as last time. And we'll go into an overview about that in a bit. Um, But internal to the rover itself, it's basically completely different. The, uh, Curiosity rover has an onboard science laboratory. In fact, that was the original name of the mission before it was named Curiosity was the Mars Science Laboratory. So Curiosity sort of ingested a lot of the, uh, rock samples and soil samples on Mars and did experiments on board. Whereas Perseverance has a toolkit on board to collect and store samples to be then picked up by a future mission to return to Earth to be studied in labs here by scientists.
1: Exactly right. And I do kind of want to underline what you said about uh, the shape of this rover, because I think what a lot of people don't realize is that um, this rover isn't dog-sized anymore. That's what they used to be about the size of. Uh, Curiosity and now Perseverance are both the size of, like, small vehicles. So we are launching and landing something that is that weighs almost as much of a, as a Mini Cooper on the surface of Mars, uh, which I think is, is really incredible. Um, and notably, this will actually, like you, I think you mentioned, but it'll be starting off the Mars sample return missions, uh, which will hopefully happen kind of throughout the next decade to bring Mars samples back to Earth. Um, do you want to explain a little bit about, about that?
0: Sure. So like I said, the, uh, this rover, Perseverance, has internally what's known as a sample caching system. What it's going to do is drive around uh, its landing site, Jezero Crater on Mars, And when it finds interesting samples, it is going to uh, take them from where it finds them on Mars. It basically has a set of test tubes on board, very specialized test tubes, that can be robotically sealed and um, kept pristine for return to Earth. And uh, every so often it's going to take these samples and basically drop them overboard, leaving them on the surface of Mars. We will note the coordinates where it drops each of these, and then a future rover will go and pick up all of these sample containers and take them back to a waiting rocket that will launch it into Mars orbit, where it will rendezvous with another spacecraft that will uh, take the samples off of that spacecraft in a manner that keeps them basically clean from uh, Earth, any, any Earth microbes or bacteria. Uh, and also, if there's potentially any Martian microbes or bacteria, that Earth return spacecraft captures them in such a way to contain those. Um, and then that sends the samples back to Earth for, uh, like I said, eventual study uh, by scientists here on the ground.
1: Yeah, that'll be a really interesting feat to see. I know we'll be working a lot with uh, the European Space Agency to facilitate the the rendezvous of those cached samples and the return of those samples back to Earth. Um, interestingly, we actually have... Done return missions before that. Both the Stardust and Genesis uh, capsules return samples from, I believe, an asteroid and a comet. If that's correct, um, yeah. And so, and so that that's been a kind of our history of our sample return robotically. And then, of course, we brought samples back from the Moon during Apollo. Um, I do also want to talk a little bit about Ingenuity and kind of what it's trying to do beyond just the tech demo, um, because it is actually quite useful to the sample return mission. So, Ingenuity has. Um, a pretty short flight time, but it will be using those flight times to hop up above the rover and basically scout out the uh the terrain and which direction the rover should go and, and kind of where it should uh where it should drive to find the best samples. And so it's really useful to be able to uh see Mars from that middle height, right? I know we see it from orbit a lot, and we see it from the ground, and the Mar- the Mars rover. Altitude is, is pretty close to the ground. Uh, but Ingenuity is kind of unlocking that bird's eye view, if you will, which is exciting.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, so, Annika, I know you've done a lot of research in entry, descent, and landing on uh, other planets. So, do you want to kind of start us off on an overview of what that entry, descent, and landing process from uh, flying through space to sitting on the surface of Mars looks like for Perseverance and Ingenuity?
1: For sure, yeah. So, just to kind of give a an overview of the, the goal state. So we're trying to get to the Jezero Crater, which is the landing site for Perseverance. And the Jezero Crater is a 28-mile uh, diameter crater that is actually thought to be an ancient river delta. Uh, and so a river delta is where a river meets what could have been an ancient ocean. And so um, it's rife for scientifically scientific uh study we're definitely really excited to land there um however it is quite challenging because it is a crater so uh that means there's a lot of steep sides to it and uh it itself is quite high altitude and that's a problem for landing because if you think about trying to land from space on mount everest versus trying to land from space uh, at sea level you have you know twenty five thousand feet less if you're trying to land on Mount Everest. Um, not saying Jezero craters is, is that high, but it's still less time to slow down.
0: Um, not only is it less time, but um, you know everyone knows that like on Mount Everest, the air is very thin uh, near the peak of it, uh, that's why everyone at the, going to the top of Mount Everest has to carry oxygen with them past a certain point. And because the air is thinner, it's not as effective at slowing down spacecraft at that altitude.
1: Exactly. And Mars itself has quite, quite a thin atmosphere to begin with. Um, and just kind of go over that landing sequence. So when Perseverance is traveling in that interplanetary space, it is attached to its cruise stage, which is kind of like a donut around the, the capsule that contains Perseverance. And the cruise stage provides it with communications to Earth and some extra power while it's just on that journey for a few months from Earth to Mars. And the cruise stage separation occurs about... 10 minutes from entry. So actually quite close. And this will be when the entry team is all in the room together um, and watching, you know, quite closely what's happening. Um, There is a time delay though. So it's noteworthy that I believe the round trip time for the speed of light to Mars and back is six minutes. So all of the data that we get back from Mars is, has already happened. Right. And so this sequence is already pre-planned and we're just getting the results back as we launch this thing or watch this thing land. Um, and so entry occurs 10 minutes after crew separation, and that is when the rover is still inside the heat shield in the back shell. And so that is that pointy heat shield with all of the um, thermal protection system on top of that, and then the back shell um, kind of encapsulates that totally. So the entry sequence, basically, the capsule will enter the atmosphere going very, very fast. It'll be at hypersonic speeds, um, and it will eventually the air will will slow it down enough to reach uh, supersonic speeds, which is still very fast, still greater than the speed of sound. But going from hypersonic to supersonic basically means that it is below Mach 5, and Mach 5 is five times the speed of sound. That's about the threshold from supersonic to hypersonic. And once we get into that supersonic regime, we can deploy the supersonic parachutes, which are these massive um, disc-gap band parachutes. And they're actually really, really cool. I'd encourage everyone who's listening to look them up. Um, but the entry parachutes are these massive parachutes that have a hole in the top and holes along the side for stability. And they test these in the NASA Ames wind tunnel, because that's kind of the only wind tunnel in the U.S. that is big enough to test these massive parachutes. And so once that parachute is deployed, um, obviously it's hopefully slowing the uh, spacecraft down at that point. And that occurs at about eight miles at altitude. Um, and as we slowly decelerate. Eventually at about uh, four to seven miles, the uh, heat shield will pop off because we're no longer going fast enough to need that thermal protection. And this is when the really cool stuff starts to happen. Um, The rover will start to use radar to try to find the ground. And that radar lock happens at about four to five miles in altitude um, while the spacecraft is still going over 200 miles an hour. Um, eventually it'll find out where the ground is, and that's when the sky crane will deploy. So the back shell pops off, that takes the parachute with it, and so the rover is once again in free fall with this vehicle called Skycrane. And Skycrane is a secondary vehicle that has retro rockets, which means that it's going to fall with the vehicle, kind of holding onto it, and then it's going to, like, Iron Man-style fire the retro rockets. And that will hover, and while it's hovering, it can slowly... Crane perseverance down to the surface of Mars. And that'll happen um, at about 70 feet. So the rover will separate off from Sky Crane, touch down hopefully softly, and Sky Crane will actually dispose of itself so it will perform a separation maneuver so that it does not fall directly onto perseverance. And then Perseverance is free to do science.
0: Yeah, and if you haven't seen a video of this sort of landing sequence. Um, we'll make sure to link it in the show notes because it's definitely like something to see what this rover is going to be doing.
1: Yeah, the uh, the video from Curiosity is called Seven Minutes of Terror, which um, I've watched many, many times, but it is an incredible video. Obviously, it's mostly CG, um, but it reenacts the actual sequence of events that I just described probably better than I can describe it. Um, it's a great watch.
0: Yeah, and that third-person view, um, that, that's mostly CG, but they did actually carry a downward-facing camera on Curiosity. So you can also see they have a video of uh, basically starts when the heat shield, which is under the camera, is uh, is uh, jettisoned, is ejected from the bottom of the capsule after the through most of the heat of reentry, so it's not needed anymore. And we actually have video from the last of these rovers that we sent down descending uh, to the surface, first on those parachutes and then on the sky crane.
1: Yeah, and it's super exciting. They also, I think, they include footage of inside the control room, which is. Very tense because you have a bunch of engineers who put you know, their heart and soul into this mission and they're watching this telemetry data come back um, and just hoping for you know, the, good, the good news of, of separation and for sky crane ignition. Um, and so it's always great to watch uh, a successful mission land and see everyone's faces in the control room and how happy they are.
0: Mm-hmm. All right, so I think that's a really good overview of the mission itself as well as the uh, entry, descent, and landing sequence. We uh, do have a couple of listener questions that we'd like to take. So the first of those is understanding the steep cliff and impact crater nature of Jezero Crater. Would landing speed be a problem?
1: Yeah. So I, I spoke a little bit to that. Um, landing speed is always a problem. Mars. The kind of the kind of joke about Mars in for entry is that uh, there's just just enough of an atmosphere to be a problem with heating, but not enough to really do a good job of slowing you down. Um, And so that's actually why we rely so heavily on on those parachutes really to slow us down in those supersonic speeds. Um, And they went under massive testing, the parachutes. They had uh, testing at JPL and testing at NASA Ames to really make sure that those parachutes were going to be stable and going to do a good job. Um, Additionally, that's why we have Sky Crane actually? So to kind of dive into some history of Mars landing, um, we didn't always use this absurd concept of Sky Crane, which was a wild concept when it was first proposed. I love Sky Crane; I think it's a brilliant feat of engineering. But previously, when we landed um, the Pathfinder mission and the Spirit and Opportunity twin rovers back in the um, '90s and then the 2000s, we actually used airbags, and that's also another you know JPL wild proposal of. Basically, it looks like a giant grape. And so you have these little air sacs that surround the rover. And so it did the same sequence. Um, and a parachute was deployed. And then it separated from the parachute. And the rover had this airbag deploy. And those rovers were small enough to be able to basically bounce and roll in this, inside of this airbag. And then come to a stop. Um, and it could roll over most of the rocks. But, but for Curiosity and Perseverance, they're actually quite a bit bigger. And so you can no longer do the airbag landing um, for kind of obvious reasons because they'll just pop. And so the speed is definitely a concern, but that's why we have SkyCrane. SkyCrane's uh, main goal is to basically null out any horizontal uh, translation and then also to hover and then land the rover softly on the ground. So the goal during that, that radar acquisition period is to really figure out what the terrain is beneath it, and to make sure that they're landing the Perseverance rover on terrain that isn't rocky and is not a cliff.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's really, really important and uh, quite a challenge.
1: Awesome. So our next listener question is, what could have been some ways to prevent Mars 2020 from going into safe mode?
0: So that's a great question Uh, for anyone that's not aware. Safe mode is... Basically, um, you can kind of think of it as like a, a seatbelt for a spacecraft. It's like a safety system that's uh, in place that if anything goes wrong, that is very much not the, you know, if the spacecraft finds itself in a state that it very much did not expect to be in, say it's it's pointing in a very different direction if it's going through space, or it has uh, some sort of like computer error or uh, any number of things that are just not what the designers expected it may be experiencing, it puts itself into a safe mode that is designed to basically prevent the system from doing any damage to itself or the damage from doing environment to it and put it in a position where it is in a stable communication state with the Earth so that uh, engineers on the ground can troubleshoot whatever is going on and potentially uplink a solution. So, um, really, the, you know, basically, uh, we learn from every time the spacecraft does go into safe mode, we will have, you know, we'll have knowledge from this time where Mars 2021 went into safe mode as it was first flying away from the Earth shortly after launch, and I think it is unlikely that we will have that exact same problem again. So I would say the way that we prevent... Uh, Mars 2020 from going into safe mode again is look at what we've learned from previous missions and uh, basically remember any mistakes or unexpected situations from them and use that to inform our operations for Mars 2020. And similarly, Mars 2020 will inform our decisions and design and operations of uh, any future space missions. But in case anything does go uh, not as planned, we have that safe mode to protect the spacecraft in many situations and allow us to recover from unexpected situations.
1: right, exactly. Those lessons learned are so important to informing our our design of next uh the next spacecraft we send up, and so that those are just ways to you know once once those things are known it 's no longer a safe mode entering you know catastrophe suddenly it 's like oh that 's just the wind or oh that 's just you know solar radiation pressure.
0: So our next question is uh, on the sample caching system on Perseverance specifically, what could be the potential challenges for Perseverance's sample caching system and bringing those samples back to the earth?
1: Yeah, so uh, this is obviously a very ambitious uh, mission. And so there's a lot of potential uh, challenges for the sample caching system. Um, I know mechanically it's a very complex system because it is robotically taking samples and storing them in, you know into a cache and then it is allowing another system to go and, and pick those samples up and then put those into a capsule and that capsule needs to be able to do that whole entry, descent and landing sequence but back here on Earth and so the points of complexity that I, w- I would probably point out are literally just the mechanical complexity of, of picking up the samples and storing them in a way where we don't get that contamination from Mars and we don't bring that contamination back to Earth um, so again, very complex design um, second point of complexity would be um, really just launching a system capable of then launching back off of Mars with those samples and rendezvousing.
0: That's the big one for me that I'll be watching, yeah. Exactly,
1: right. And so, yeah, so picking those samples up and then launching off of the surface of Mars and then rendezvousing with a another spacecraft that then takes the samples back to Earth. Obviously, we're we've pretty much nailed down the... Um, getting from Mars to Earth or Earth to Mars. So that's actually not what I'm worried about. Like you said, it's it's really getting off the surface of Mars. And of course, I'm, I personally am I'm worried a little bit about the entry just because uh, we've had a few issues with uh, sample return capsules in the past. Notably, the Genesis capsule uh, did not slow down. Everything was fine. It actually survived impact, but it, it hit the Earth a lot faster uh, in the desert than it was supposed to. So hoping that... Uh, They remember to to slow out, to slow down the capsule when the samples come back.
0: Yeah, and I think they they have a whole test campaign planned for I know they've had test campaigns previously for the parachutes on Perseverance, and I'm sure there will be a massive test campaign for this rocket for launching off of the surface of Mars. That just for me, I feel like every other part of this system we have tried in some capacity. You know, we have some experience, at least in labs on the ground. Uh, as well as with previous Mars missions for picking up samples off the surface of Mars um, and depositing them somewhere. We have numerous systems where we've done rendezvous in orbit and send samples back once you're uh, in orbit in space, sending those samples back to the Earth. But this is something we don't have a lot of experience on, is launching rockets off of another world that have been uh, delivered there by a spacecraft from Earth. And mind you, this rocket not only will be launching off of the surface of another planet, which we've never launched a rocket off the surface of another planet before. Probably the closest thing was when we launched all of the Apollo missions off of the surface of the moon to return them to the Earth. But uh, in addition to the complexity of an atmosphere and a larger gravity well than the moon, this rocket will be sitting on the surface of Mars four years before the samples are deposited on it and it launches back into Martian orbit.
1: Absolutely. And just to add to that, one more final level of complexity is, of course, making sure that all these things are in the same location, right? It's pretty tricky to target things exactly when you land. And so we obviously don't want um, whatever fetch rover is picking up these samples to be driving around forever. But yeah, that's a great summary of the the launch concerns. Great. So uh, I guess the final question that we have is more of a personal question. Um, so what is your favorite spacecraft or mission, Matt? Uh,
0: how do I pick just one? I guess I have to say that my favorite is the, the one that I'm working on right now, which is OSAM-1. Uh, it's the on-orbit servicing assembly and manufacturing mission. I feel like I'd get in trouble if I picked any others, but I really do like that mission. And that's, you know, why I'm working on it. Um, and that is to robotically capture a satellite that is in Earth orbit, one of uh, NASA's Earth-observing satellites, and refuel it so it can continue its mission. It's basically, you know, out of fuel, but otherwise still totally operational. Um, in terms of uh, other missions, I know uh, just personally for me, uh, the Mars Exploration Rovers and Stardust definitely, I feel like I was kind of always very interested in spaceflight, but definitely following those missions growing up, you know played a big part in me becoming even more interested in and following the space program much more closely. How about you?
1: man, those are all really good answers. Um, I think growing up, my biggest influence was was the space shuttle, and so obviously those are are over hundred missions, but um, all the space shuttle launches were really important to me um, and I think in terms of exploration, kind of the deep space missions, I've always found the Uh, the gas giants to be fascinating. And so I have a soft spot for any of the missions I went to the gas giants, including um, Cassini. I love Cassini and Juno. Obviously Juno was was, um, more recent um, and it followed up on the Galileo mission. Um, But Juno is a really fascinating spacecraft. And obviously it's, it's, I think, kind of an underdog kind of tough because it's solar powered out at Jupiter. It's kind of doing something that was never been done before. Um, in a really harsh radiation environment and it's still going it actually got a mission extension recently which is really exciting um, and I think I'd be remiss to not mention the Voyager missions which of course uh, were really a tour de force you know they toured almost all of the planets in the solar system um, and obviously have now left our solar system I know at least Voyager 2 has I think I don't know if Voyager 1 has yet um, but those missions were just such an ambitious Um, utilization of the opportunity, opportunity they had to tour all those planets and get some of the first up close pictures we have of, you know, of Uranus, of Neptune.
0: And when you say you don't know if Voyager 2 has exited the solar system, it's not like that is like something that you're not just up to date on, is like that fact or not. Like, scientists are literally not sure. If Voyager 2 has uh, exited the solar system, it's like somewhere along the border and it kind of gets to be a very fuzzy question of how do you define the outer edge of the solar system? There's kind of all of these, you know, different layers of the sun's wake, essentially, as the solar system is flying through the galaxy. And it's just really hard to pin down, um, you know, when you cross that fuzzy barrier.
1: Absolutely. Well, that's all the questions we have time for today. If you're curious about other topics or have questions for our next episode, submit them via our socials at For All Humankind Pod on Facebook and Instagram, or at allhumankind on Twitter with the hashtag F-A-H underscore AMA. You can also email us at forallhumankindpod at gmail.com. Next, we'll move on to our interview with Sabrina Khan, who is an engineer and a scientist working on Mars Curiosity data, and we're really excited to get the chance to talk to Sabrina.
0: Sabrina is a senior at MIT, majoring in planetary science and aerospace engineering. She has held internships with Axion Systems and NASA JPL, where she currently studies geochemistry and geomorphology on Mars as a participating scientist on the MSL science team. In her previous two years at JPL, Sabrina worked on integration and testing for the Mars 2020 Perseverance rover. At MIT, Sabrina has worked in the Space Systems Lab studying Mars Mission Architectures, the Kavli Institute for Astrophysics and Space Research Designing Software for a spectrograph installed on the Magellan Telescopes in Chile, and also has helped design and test a CubeSat called BeaverCube for her capstone course. She also has served as president of the MIT chapter of Way for two years and is currently the internal vice chair for WOA National.
1: Great, welcome Serena. Um so could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure.
2: Um so yeah, I'm a senior at MIT and um I've been studying you know aeronautics and astronautics for the past uh I guess four and a half years. Um and you know recently I've been getting more into the science side of space research, um, and transitioning more into planetary science and geology, which um I don't know, I found really exciting because I think a lot of people who enter AeroAstro um, are excited about space primarily, and but there are a lot of different avenues you can take in studying space. Um, and I guess I realized like a year and a half ago that um, geology and planetary science is the thing that you do after you land at a place like Mars. Um, and so that's kind of what my work has been in recently is, um, you know, getting... Getting myself up to speed in, in what geology and planetary science looks like as a field, um, as a science, and then starting to actually like get my toes into doing the actual research um, and working with the data. Uh, so that's 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 basically what I do now.
1: Great. Yeah, thank you. Um, you mentioned, you know, you, you have this kind of transition from engineering to planetary science. Could you speak to why you decided to make that switch and kind of what drew you to the science side once you had set out in your undergrad degree? Yeah,
2: um, I think a lot of it was that, uh, so I started MIT wanting to do astrophysics. And I pretty quickly realized that physics is not for me. <laughs> um, and then I think, you know, kind of the next best, best thing, it seemed like to me, was to do um, aerospace engineering. And so I did that um, for you know I guess two and a half years it would have been. Um, and in my in doing that coursework, I had to take a few classes in the Earth and Planetary Sciences department. Um, and I was like, "Wow, wait a second, this is like actually a lot of fun." Like <laughs> geology, I never would have thought you know geology is just studying rocks, but it's actually really interesting. It it's a way of um, looking at what's underneath your feet that, you know, you never would have kind of given a second thought about before, but now you're like, oh, I suddenly see all these different connections and patterns and cycles in the world around me. And for me, as someone who's interested in space, it was like, oh, well, you know, if I go to Mars, then is there a way to connect what I'm seeing, you know, in the world around me to what I could possibly see on a completely different planet.
0: Um,
2: and so once I made that connection, I think it suddenly became a lot more exciting to me to want to explore this like different aspect of space exploration, which I think is, um, it's not downplayed, but, um, you know, sending a rocket up into space and driving a rover on a different planet, I think is on the surface, very exciting and possibly more exciting than, you know, studying what rocks are on Mars. Um, and so, yeah, once I made that realization, I was kind of like, Hey, this is like a really cool, <laughs> different side of the space exploration field that I had just like never considered before. Um, and so that's kind of how I, I made that transition. And I haven't really looked back, but I don't think I've left engineering behind either. I think it's more of a, um, trying to figure out how to combine them in a way that's, um, that's, that's meaningful where I'm not kind of you know i'm not fully a scientist but i'm also not fully an engineer just making that that connection
0: do you feel that gives you any you know advantages uh, compared to someone that may have chosen one over the other i know you know it, it definitely and when i've been in conversations with uh, planetary scientists and engineers, they very much have their own way about thinking about the same problem. So do you feel like you're, you know, you kind of have a unique perspective by having sort of like one foot in both worlds compared to either of those groups? That is a tough question.
2: Um, I wouldn't necessarily say it gave me an advantage on either side, um, but I do think what it does is um there's, There's, there's something in, in, in designing, I think, a mission where, you know, the scientists have their own goals. They want to do something and the engineers are there to achieve those goals, but also, you know, they, they want to be, they want to be exploring space. So they'll, they have, they have technology that they can match to a science goal, but both of those groups have to know what the other group wants. And if you don't know what the technology is, to meet a science goal that you have, then you might not be taking advantage of the most current technologies. Um, And I think that's maybe where someone who has experience in both fields, um, or at least has connections in both fields, can be very beneficial. Um, Like I've spoken to other planetary scientists who, who basically said to me that they're working on a mission right now where, if they didn't know what the engineer was doing like in a building not even two hundred feet away from them, then they would have never had the mission they were currently like heading up um and so it's that kind of that kind of understanding, that kind of like having your fingers on a bunch of different places at once that i think um, that I think gives you the biggest advantage, otherwise, I would say that <laughs> But the general perception of someone who's in between is that you're not fully either an engineer or scientist. Um, and that may come with its own downsides.
0: Yeah, it sounds like you're saying, you know, engineers and scientists should really be working with each other um, maybe much more than they are now. Where they, you know, there may be interchange meetings, but then they kind of go off and work in their own groups. And, and uh, there's a lot of advantage to be gained by working more closely with each other?
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So do you have any advice that you would give, you know, knowing what you know now, you say you started in astrophysics and that was not sort of exactly what you expected it would be. Um, And also in terms of engineering and planetary science, do you have any advice that you would give to someone trying to decide which of those three fields they are interested in studying?
2: I think it, it comes down to... Kind of taking that first few years of, it depends on, I guess, where you are in life. Um, as an undergraduate, I would say the best thing to do would just be to take a few different classes in each of those different areas and see what you like. Um, and, you know, if, if you're a graduate student or if you're just entering graduate school, there's also nothing wrong with, you know, changing your field altogether. Um, I think, The idea of switching majors later on is really intimidating, but it's, you know, it's not, it's not that bad. Um, you can, you can make it work. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I I can definitely see how it's, it's really hard to pick something you like, especially if you like space, because people who like space are kind of passionate about every aspect of it. And, um, and there are definitely ways to combine all three of those things. Um, you don't necessarily have to even limit yourself to just one or two of them. Um, but it's really a matter of being able to uh, just at least get an introductory course under your belt or even an internship in one of them, and then seeing where the connections are and seeing where there might be gaps in someone's understanding or you know, gaps in, in connections that could have been made where where you can, can kind of step in and feel that.
1: That is great advice. And kind of to follow up on, on that sort of trying to figure out what calls to you the most out of, out of that set of things, um, you've had internships at, um, in private industry, in a government lab, and in the academic environment. And it's like the trifecta of aerospace work. Um, could you speak a little bit to the similarities and differences in those work environments? And maybe um, did they help you at all kind of hone in on what kind of work you actually wanted to do? Oh, That's a good question.
2: I so I my personal experience has been that um, people on the science side tend to err more towards the academia and people on the engineering side tend to go towards uh, industry um, and that for me has been hard to kind of reconcile because I want to be a a geologist or planetary scientist who works in industry and that's not that's not common and it you know, it's definitely not, um I don't even think there are very many job positions out there for someone like that. <laughs> um, so yeah, there have been a lot of differences. Um, and I think a lot of it stems from, you know, the scientists are in it to publish. They're in it to do research and make publications uh and then, and collect data. And the engineers are the ones who are giving you the ability to collect the data. And so they're there to design things and to build things and send them off to space. So that is somewhat of an in- incompatibility, but I don't think that it's, um, I don't think that it's something that can't be overcome. You know, there are people who, um, will do the research, uh, work with the data, uh, do their own publications. Um, but then they'll turn around and, say, this is how you can build an instrument out of this. Or I realized in doing this research that um, there is a way you could collect my data better. And I would like it if, you know, the engineers could design something like this. Uh, and same with the engineers. Like, oh, I found this really cool new technique or remote sensing or instrumentation or, or whatever it is. Um, and... I would be happy to build an instrument that could do this for you um, in in the sciences. So yeah, it is different. They're slightly incompatible, but it's not, it's not too bad. It's not, um, it's not something you can't overcome. You're a little bit
1: creative about how you approach these different kinds of problems. Could you speak kind of on your current research and like how you ended up doing that and what led you to that?
2: Oh yeah. Um, so right now I'm working with, um, Dr. Catherine Stack Morgan, who's the deputy PI for Mars twenty twenty, which is uh, super exciting. Um, although I'm not working on anything related to twenty twenty right now, um, but she was interested in doing some research related to um, the geochemistry of Mars. Um, so there are these there are these different uh, I guess you could call them families of um, of rocks on Mars and they they differ in like the way they appear, their their composition. And we're trying to figure out if there's any way that, you know, if you came across a rock that if you looked at it and you couldn't understand what it was just by looking at it and maybe doing some um, slightly more detailed analysis, is there a way that you could look at its chemistry and try and place it in one of those different families? Um, and that's kind of where, <laughs> that's the first line of research that I'm doing is, is being able to work with the ChemCam instrument and, uh, using the geochemistry that, geochemistry data that it produces to kind of make that assessment. Uh, and then the other project I'm working on is slightly different. Um, that one's looking at a region of Mars that we just recently traversed, I guess about a year ago. Um, if I'd have to say it's called Glen Thornton. Um, and there they have these, it's basically just like a field of pebbles. And, uh, and we're trying to figure out how those pebbles formed, whether or not it was like they formed, um, from wind abrasion or if they formed from, uh, some kind of fluvial, like river system or possibly a lake, um, just by looking at the shape and size of the rock. Uh, so it's, <laughs> I, I guess it's, <laughs> I, when I started doing geology, I was like, oh, you know, I'll be looking at, like, glaciers and and the rocks that are formed from, like, in the middle of the ocean or upwelling in the middle of the ocean that causes, um like, you know, volcanoes or the continental divide and things like that. But instead, I'm looking at pebbles, which I think is is definitely different, but I think it's really exciting in a way because it's a way for you to look into the past of a planet without... Um, without even being there. Um, so, yeah, my research is, uh, it's kind of divergent, but it's also a good way for me to uh, learn these different aspects of geology uh, in practice. Without, <laughs> I haven't actually learned any of these things in the classroom yet, so a little different.
0: Yeah, can you just um, go into a little detail about how you, you know, sort of, I guess what does the data look like when you're, you know, doing this analysis? Like when you say, you know, the geochemistry of a rock. Like, what sort of data are you looking at about a rock?
2: Yeah. So for the geochemistry, I, I might be looking. So ChemCam, um, what ChemCam basically does is it shoots lasers at a rock, and it collects its. Um, it it it's basically like a spectrograph. It'll collect information about the properties, the chemical properties of that rock, it'll tell you what the percentage abundance of any kind of element. Um, so for example, it might tell you the percentage of abundance of potassium or, uh, or silica. Um, so I think it measures something like seven or eight different uh, chemical abundances. Um, and then from that, it's you know all compiled into one giant spreadsheet, which is publicly available like anyone could go look it up on um nasa's p d s system and uh and and yeah, you basically it's all the great thing about p d s too is that it's all calibrated for you on chemcam, so all you have to do is download the Excel data sheet and then you have to start parsing it um so that's the data that I look for for geochemistry, I just look at those abundances and then I put them together in some pretty charts. Um, and for the geomorphology side where I look at the pebbles, um, I literally just pull up pictures of different pebbles <laughs> on Mars uh, and I will go into something like Image J and I'll trace the pebble um, and measure, you know, what is its major axis or what is the roundness and image j can spit all that information out to me and then i do the analysis
0: from there yeah and i imagine that you know artistic skills for uh for that come into play maybe even as much as like mathematical and uh, analytical skills that people traditionally think of for uh, this sort of science work
2: yeah i i didn't um graph plot making is very different. <laughs> i think figure making in in science is very underappreciated uh, it's yeah, it's very artistic. It's being able to choose colors that you can easily see and conveying as much data as you can. So yeah, figure making does yeah it does require a bit of an artistic touch. But I
1: hadn't before. Yeah, for sure. I really appreciate when people make beautiful figures, and I think uh, they're few and far between in a lot of academic journals, unfortunately. <laughs> exactly. For sure. To uh to kind of zoom out a little bit. Um, I know. It's. I think it's so cool that that the pebbles on Mars are such a mystery, and all the rocks can reveal so much about the planet itself. And I know Mars has been the focus of scientific exploration, at least here in the U.S. for a really long time. Um, and can you maybe talk about what you find so interesting about Mars, or if you know, mean, what the kind of the whole community loves about Mars and why we keep sending rovers there?
2: Yeah, this is a, it's kind of a tough question because I think we've always had a fascination with Mars. It's you know it's a- right red planet and it's the closest one to us so we can see it pretty easily um and and you know maybe there are aliens there uh because it's you know just within that range where we could possibly have had life um so I think Mars speaks to us in kind of a lot of different ways speaks to you on on kind of a pop culture level like there's so much science fiction about it and and also that it's so close and it's almost like earth and and, you know, maybe from a scientific perspective, we could, we could, you know, tie some discoveries on Mars back to Earth. Um, so I, I think that's probably the main draw. Um, but I think what's really fascinating about Mars is that its development kind of, you know, maybe it was like Earth at some point in time, and then all of a sudden it just kind of did a 180 and it was completely different, you know? Um, its tilt is so dramatic that, um, over the course of hundreds of thousands or millions of years, I'm not sure what the scale is anymore, but, um, it can go from having a somewhat temperate environment where there could be liquid water and, um, and lakes and rivers, uh, to suddenly what it looks like now, which is dry and arid and completely inhospitable based on what we can tell. Um, so it's, it's so dramatically different now than Earth, and it makes you wonder why. Why is it like this? Why isn't it like more like Mars? Why isn't it like Venus? You know, um, what made it change so much, and and how can we figure that out? You know, is it in the rock record? Is it, you know, something about the atmosphere? Um, did did something collide with it at some point that made it the way it is? Um, there's so many unanswered questions. Um, And it also, I think what the really cool thing is about geology and asking those questions about Mars is that they suddenly make you turn around and look at Earth and ask yourself the same questions. Why is Earth the way it is? Why don't we really understand that much about how Earth was formed and what early Earth looked like? Um, Or even what, you know, we might understand the surface of the Earth well enough um, but we don't really understand the mantle and the core that well, um, which is something that's kind of mind-boggling when you think that, you know, we've probably been doing geology for as long as we've been around as a species, and we still don't really know what's underneath our feet all that well. Um, so it's kind of a crazy field that has so many unanswered questions, and is you know, it's, Mars is just like a, a giant question mark, and Earth is too, so it's It's very exciting, but also a lot to be a lot of work to be done,
0: yeah, I know a lot of people um you know point out that we know more about the surface of Mars than we do about uh like the deep oceans on the earth, so I don't know if if you have any thoughts on that, like uh you know what there is to learn there, maybe there's some pointers we can take from Mars exploration to to doing similar types of studies in the oceans
2: yeah, i I completely, I actually heard that quote not too long ago, and I was, I was, I just, it's ridiculous for, for me to think that that can be true, but it definitely is. And I, and you know, when you think about it, it's, um, you know, we're planning on sending eventually, uh, a rover or, you know, some kind of submarine vessel to Europa eventually to, like, understand what the ocean uh, under the ice looks like if there is an ocean there. Um, and that's definitely technology that could probably be applicable to understanding the deep ocean on Earth. Uh, so there are a lot of, you know, I think space exploration and Earth exploration run in parallel. And what you learn in one, you can apply to the other and vice versa. And so that's really cool because there's this kind of give and take um between those two different disciplines, uh, that make it, you know, is an exciting place to work in. But I think that the 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 kind of interest in understanding Earth processes is maybe less exciting than in understanding the ones for different planets in the solar system.
1: So I know we have a big landing coming up. You know, the the Mars twenty twenty rover, Perseverance, is going to be landing on February eighteenth, um, and. It's kind of a twin to curiosity. And so I was wondering if you had a wish list for... I know it's been working on slightly different different science tasks, but do you kind of have a, a, a wish list for what it will discover or what kind of data it could bring back that you haven't been able to get out of curiosity?
2: I mean, it would be great if they found signs of life. <laughs> that would be exciting. Um, yes, I, there is a slight difference in the goals between... MSL, Curiosity, and, and Perseverance, which is that uh, Curiosity was mainly looking for environments conducive to life, and Perseverance is now looking for direct signs of life. It's looking for evidence um, in the environments that Curiosity kind of confirmed, you know, these are places we could have found it. Um, and so, yeah, Perseverance is looking in... I think, an ancient lake bed, uh, Jezero Crater. And um, it would be great if it found signs of life. I think something else that will be really exciting to see from the Mars 2020 mission is the data from ingenuity. Um Because one of the interesting things that i found in the last 10 months working on MSL is that there's a big difference in data you can get from a rover versus a satellite. Um, And there's kind of nothing in between. So we're operating on kind of two spatial scales to understand the planet Um, on the ground and in orbit and nothing else. Um, And what the Ingenuity Helicopter allows us to do is kind of look from, you know, a little bit higher up and take some more photos and kind of understand it from a regional scale instead of, you know, meters to planet-sized. T- planet um, so I'd be interested in seeing what we get out of that, and if that does provide us um, a huge benefit in terms of being able to view geological science um, in situ. Finding life and using the helicopter will be the exciting new things that we might be able to
1: see. For sure. And, and regardless, it'll be cool to have that, that tech demo of a helicopter. So it kind of opens the door to using helicopters on different planets, right? Exactly.
2: And, and I think I was talking about, you know, I was talking about before, like, um, how, you know, there's that give and take between earth science and planetary science. I think after maybe, maybe it's at the same time, but with the helicopter ingenuity, we're also getting a lot more interested in using quadcopters to study like, you know, earth science here. So. You know, it's it's you know it's cool. I think quadcopters are exciting, regardless of where they are for geosciences.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, so I was wondering if you had any thoughts on um, what you think future generations will get out of this mission. You know, Perseverance is definitely a very forward-thinking mission. It is unlike other rovers, which have sort of been independent and you know self-contained, designed one mission at a time. Perseverance is the start of a campaign conducted by NASA as well as NASA's partners in other countries to bring samples back to Earth. So uh, I'm curious what you think of that, you know, sort of more longer looking aspect of it and and what you think that we may hope to learn from uh, from those samples and potentially for future travelers to Mars as well.
2: Yeah, I believe the samples will be, will make a big difference. Um for the Apollo samples, you know, there's there's only so much you can do by sending a rover or by sending a satellite. Uh, there's only so much data you can collect, um, and even the instruments, you know, they have they have their own limits. They, they can only do so much, um, as as well designed as they are, they can only do so much. So having being able to bring those samples back down to Earth. Kind of, though, it'll allow you to do a lot more in terms of testing, figuring out maybe some, you know, I, I do geochemistry. I've done a little bit of geochemistry. Um, and I can only imagine how excited real geochemists would be to see some, like, actual rocks and being able to do some, some more detailed testing with, with those. Um, and, and surely there are more tests than we could ever even imagine of doing on, on a rover. Uh, that we can do here on Earth. So I believe that bringing back the samples will make will make a pretty big difference. Um, beyond that, I think it's also just really exciting to have um, Martian samples on Earth. You know, we have, the only samples we really have from Mars are meteorites. Um, and that used to be the same for the moon until we landed there. So, you know, and I, I think Biden, you know, just put, a lunar sample in his office. So it's that kind of thing. It's just you know having having a physical representation of our ability to travel to another planet is just really cool. So I hope that if anything, you know that will kind of be another reason for someone to get into space sciences or uh, air astro, just because we can go to Mars and we can send things back, and maybe in the future we can do the same thing with a human.
1: So you've also been involved in a lot of K-12 through outreach uh, through WOA as well as on your own and through WAY at MIT. Um, can you speak a bit on how you got into that work and what you're working on currently?
2: I started doing outreach in high school. Um, I think I got really into making. Um, my dad has always had me work on his cars and things like that and somewhere along the line, it occurred to me that maybe I might be interested in sharing some of that knowledge with some of the people uh, in my community. Um, so I started this like maker club for my town and we would like get together and do electronics lessons and, um, or I would teach them whatever I was kind of interested in at the moment. Um, and that like transitioned into summer camp uh, for one year. Um, and I got even more excited about Kind of sharing my own knowledge and also learning from other people and being able to inspire a younger generation of students to to at least be interested in STEM um, and consider it, you know, something that's part of their lives instead of something that is unachievable or for some reason they they can't understand. Um, and since then, I've just been doing whatever outreach project comes my way um, for way, you know. Annika knows. I've just been like, you know, helping out with uh, whatever whatever was going on with Way at the time. So we did like museum outreach days for younger girls, and then um, we would also have a Way day where high school students could come in and learn about uh, aerospace engineering from the undergrads and the grad students at MIT. Um, so that was how I got involved with it um, to begin with, and, and how I continued it in my undergrad, um, and more recently i have been um, i've trying to been i've been trying to take on projects that are more uh related to science but also broader uh than what I was originally doing um, and right now I'm working with someone from Project Possum awesome, who is an educator in California and absolutely amazing um and she and I have been working to start this citizen science project where um Students can, they can collect these, these little worms that are, you know, in the soil called nematodes and uh, run a few experiments with them and then put that data on a database online that's, you know, accessible to, to anyone who goes on the website. Uh, and then maybe start collaborations with other students and do some research into the data that they have collected and potentially write a paper about it or use it for a science project, things like that. Um and it's it's an exciting way to get involved in in doing science and realizing that it's something that is absolutely right in your backyard if you uh if you know what to look for. Um and also get them involved in this process of science that I think is um I, I think for me it was it was kind of hard to understand the process of publications and This is how you present your work, and and this is how you go about doing the scientific process and data analysis. Um, And they can learn all those things with just a little bit of data and just a little bit of guidance Uh, and start, you know, getting on that path if that's what they're interested in. So that's my most recent project, and hopefully that'll be up and running in the next month or so. Um, But beyond that, you know, it's just just been... (laughs) Well, whatever... Whatever projects are are in the works.
1: That's awesome. I feel like I would have loved that as a kid because I loved dirt and catching frogs and worms. So that, was, yeah. that sounds super exciting. Exactly. What is Project Possum? Could you speak like kind of to what that is?
2: Yeah, I don't think I'll do it much justice, but um, Project Possum is. I think it's a nonprofit uh, that uh, they're they're a scientific institution, so they but they're also an educating institution organization. So. They do work, I'm not sure I'll get this right, but they do, I think, what's called like mesospheric atmospheric science. Um, and they, they, they basically teach people who are interested in becoming astronauts. So they have a lot of classes to teach you about astronautics. Um, I think the there's this article that came out a few years ago but about a 15-year-old who was like the youngest person to do astronaut training, uh, and she worked with Project Possum. Awesome. So she went through their their courses uh, and learned about how to do science for for astronauts. So that's that's kind of what they are on a higher level. Um, but they have a a kind of a subgroup called Possum Thirteen, which is kind of a tribute to the Mercury Thirteen women, um, and they're committed. To outreach and to getting women involved and underrepresented minorities and LGBTQ all of those um, groups more involved in aerospace research, whether it's science or the engineering. Uh, so they have competitions, um, and and then they also have courses, and then they have things like this where they do just straight outreach. Um, and you know they're they're fantastic, and they're all in their own right. All these, these 13 women are just like amazing. they are people who have been finalists in the astronaut selection process and they are people who are analog astronauts and you know professors. So they're just all
0: amazing. Yeah, that sounds awesome. So you're, you know, you're involved in so many things, your classwork, all of this uh, research that you're doing, all the outreach. Um, but is there anything else that you like to do in your free time just for fun or to relax? I like to
2: read and hike. I don't really have <laughs> that many things where... It feels like now that we're in quarantine and things like that, there's not many places to go, otherwise I would travel as much as I could in all this free time that I have. Um, but right now it's just been like going outside and going for like a, an hour-long hike um, and just sitting down and reading because I haven't done that in four years. <laughs> so um, it's just been really enjoyable to kind of slow down a little bit and, and do some of those things that, that I haven't, just haven't had time to do in, while I was in undergrad, so.
1: Great, well, thank you so much for, for coming on and talking all about all of your research and what you do, and you just do so much outreach and so many amazing things. We You've been an amazing part of and It's been awesome to actually talk to you about, you know, all of the exciting things in geology and Mars.
2: Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. This is, like, super
0: cool. Before we wrap up for today, we had a couple congratulations to go around on some exciting flights in the aerospace industry since our last episode. Our first congratulations is to Blue Origin, who conducted a successful test flight of the New Shepard suborbital launch vehicle and capsule to be used for space tourism flights. These are suborbital flights launching from West Texas and it is suspected that this may be the second-to-last uncrewed test flight before they start moving into a couple crewed test flights leading to actual revenue flights carrying space tourists. So keep watching Blue Origin, and we hope to be following some crewed test flights before the end of the year. We also offer our very special congratulations to Virgin Orbit for joining the Orbit Club, a very exclusive club of 13 countries and five private space companies that have the ability to launch their own rockets into orbit. Virgin Orbit achieved this with their Launcher One launch vehicle over the past month.
1: For All Humankind is an independent podcast produced in collaboration with the Women of Aeronautics and Astronautics, or WOA. It's hosted by Matt Marcus and Audica Rollick. Sound design, editing, and original music by Mitchell Marcus.
0: You can follow our guest today, Sabrina Khan, on her website, www.sabrinakhan.org. S-A-B-R-I-N-A-K-H-A-N.org.
1: You can find out more about the Mars 2020 mission at mars2020.com. You can watch the landing on NASA's YouTube or the NASA TV app.
0: Have a question you want us to answer? Suggestions for someone to interview or a specific subject to cover? General comments about the show? Let us know at forallhumankindpod at gmail.com, one word, all lowercase. You can find us at forallhumankindpod on Facebook and Instagram, at allhumankindpod on Twitter, or visit our website for allhumankind.org. Thanks.